Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Could You Voice. Today, we're sitting down with born and bred Eastern Suburbs local, Mad South supporter, and federal member for Kingsford Smith, Matt Thistlethwaite. Today, we unpack all that's been going on in federal politics over the past few years, from sports rorts to Brittany Higgins and a federal ICAC. Come with us on this journey. You're listening to Coogee Voice. When we started to have a look at this proposal, some of the toxins that they've admitted will come out of the stack, uh, a stack that's 11 storeys high, uh, are a bit of a concern. And I think that given our community's got the airport, we've got Port Botany, we've got ICI, or Orica and Quenos, the former ICI site, there's enough pollution in our area as it is. The local Aboriginal community there have called that home for thousands of years. They weren't consulted about this before the government patched up this plot. But we do need more women involved in politics. We need more women's voices in the parliament. And we need more women advising governments as well in, in senior bureaucracy, in government boards. Matt, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? Thanks, Marjorie. Thanks for having me. It's finally, uh, I've, I've made the big time, the Coogee Voice podcast. I've been waiting for the invite, but I'm finally here. Thanks <laughs> for know, having me. It is a pleasure. Now, before we get into the guts of our interview, you've grown up around the eastern suburbs. Tell us a little bit about that. How's the area changed? What do you love most about the east? Yeah, I grew up in Maroubra, um, born and bred. I went to school locally um, at St. Michael's Daceville and then at what was then Marsh Brothers Pagewood, now Champagne Catholic College. Played footy locally for the Maroubra Lions. Uh, their home ground was across the road from where I grew up. And when I was about 13 years old, I got involved in Maroubra Surf Club. So it's just a wonderful area to grow up in, to have a connection with, and that's why it's such a wonderful privilege to be able to represent that community in the federal parliament now. Controversial question for people living in the eastern suburbs, south or east? I'm a Rabbitohs supporter through and through. My uh, grandfather was a life member of the Rabbitohs, so fond memories of growing up, sitting on his lap at, at uh, Redfern Oval. He used to be on the gate every Sunday for the games. Uh, he'd, he'd sort of collect the money as the patrons came in and I'd sort of sit on his on his lap. One of my earliest memories of, of life is is going to a South Roosters game on a Friday night with my grandparents. Uh, I can still remember, unfortunately, we lost. <laughs> but uh, I'll never forget my grandfather taking me down into the dressing sheds after the game and getting the opportunity to meet some of my heroes. So uh, my father's a Rabbitohs supporter, I'm a Rabbitohs supporter, and now all my kids are as well. You disown them if they weren't? What happens yeah. if they marry a dragon supporter? Well, they could choose to do that if they wanted to, but um, they choose to sleep inside the house rather than out. <laughs> Eastern Suburbs has changed a bit over the past few decades. I guess firstly starting, what do you love most about the East? I think it's the community uh, and the wonderful organisations that represent people in our area. And I often say to people, We've got the most magnificent coastline, beautiful beaches, Botany Bay, some magnificent parklands, but the best thing about our community is the people and the fact that we look after each other. Many of us, like yourself, have grown up in the area all our lives. We know each other 
and we take care of each other. And that's reflected in the community groups from the surf clubs, the sporting clubs, um, organisations like the Kalura Community Centre, uh, the Junction Neighbourhood Centre, many of the church and welfare groups that do great work looking after other people, the Kingsford Legal Centre. They're all institutions within our community and, uh, and they reflect that sense of belonging and caring for each other. And I honestly believe that's that's why Labor's been able to maintain such a presence in the area for so long. Uh, we had those working class roots that have translated into such great community groups and they reflect what Labor's really all about and that's looking after people. And if there was anything that you could change, what would it be? Uh, about our area? I suppose it's getting a bit congested uh, and some of the developments I think are too big and, and yourself and I, Michael Daly and others have been campaigning against overdevelopment in our community for many, many years. I understand that people need a place to live and if we're going to make uh, ensure that house prices remain reasonable, we have to increase supply. But often these developments come along without the necessary infrastructure like uh, transport links, schools childcare centres and the like, and it's just poor planning. And I think that our area has certainly taken its fair share over the last decade. And I just think that the community deserves a say in how we develop and what our area looks like in the future. Matt, it's been a big few years globally in federal politics. Where do we start? For me, Let's start with sports rorts. Some people have got some short memories. Give us a recap. Yeah, well, sports rorts is about misuse of taxpayers' dollars. The government initiated a program to distribute funding for sporting clubs throughout the country that needed to upgrade their facilities and their infrastructure. And they asked the Australian Sports Commission um, to receive all of the applications so MPs and sporting clubs could make an application to the Australian Sports Commission for this funding, and the Sports Commission was asked to rank them in order of preference from the most needy to the least needy, and looking at things like, importantly, providing female facilities uh, for a lot of sporting clubs. You know, you've heard the stories of women having to get changed in broom closets and the like because there were no toilets or change rooms available for women's AFL or soccer teams or hockey teams and the like. Or rugby. Or rugby, um, exactly right. And the, the Sports Commission ranked them and then it went off to the minister and we uncovered through Senate estimates that the minister had been in contact with the Prime Minister and his office had changed a lot of the rankings and had directed the funding into marginal held liberal seats or marginal labor seats that they were intending to target at the upcoming election. So it was pork barreling. And in one of the most outrageous abuses of this program, the funding was actually distributed and it was a big novelty check that was handed over to a sporting club by Georgina Downer, which is Alexander Downer's daughter, who was a candidate in a seat in Adelaide. She wasn't even a member of parliament. And here you've got someone that's got connect, strong connections with the Liberal Party, happens to be one of their candidates, handing over funds to a local sporting club. And that was, I think, a perfect illustration of how they've completely abused that system. And we uncovered all of that. And when it was uncovered, it was reported in the media. 
And I think it necessarily highlighted uh, what's rotten and wrong with this government in the way that they abuse taxpayers' dollars. Just as a bit of a recap, maybe simplifying for our listeners, what is wrong with pork barrelling by a government? Well, it's improper use of public funds. Taxpayers pay taxes so that governments uh, distribute those funds to produce the fairest and the best and most efficient outcomes for our community and our society. And that wasn't occurring here because the Sports Commission, an independent body, had done the rankings and they determined where the need was. Well, the, the Morrison government came along and changed all of that to suit their own political purposes. And that's wrong. And that's why we believe that we need a federal ICAC with important and strong powers to inquire into these sort of things when they occur and to highlight abuse so that people can make informed decisions when they go to vote, but also if there's been any wrongdoing, that people can be prosecuted. And the Morrison government have promised, they promised a federal ICAC before the last election. They've had three years and they've done nothing. And then when they did release some legislation, it was a a pretty weak uh, proposal that they had. And if a politician was called before it, it was going to be the case that all of those hearings would have been done behind closed doors and the public would have never have known. And we think that that's wrong. The statement, I don't hold a hose, (laughs) is something that our Prime Minister has said, but has become, I guess, a statement that's synonymous with him. What does that statement to you say about our Prime Minister and the way he sees his leadership? It's emblematic of his approach to governing the country. It comes about because of the bushfires that occurred in 2019, the worst that we've ever seen in Australia. And at the time, people were losing their homes. Um, There were lives that were lost. Communities were burnt to the ground. And Scott Morrison decided to go on holidays in Hawaii. And then when his office was asked where he was, they lied to the media and said, that he wasn't on holidays, then it was uncovered because someone took a photo of him in Waikiki. And he got back, he was criticised in the media, and in an interview he said, well, I don't hold a hose. But you're the Prime Minister, you're meant to be leading the government's response to support Australians and to help them through this difficult time. And then he went to some of the bushfire-affected areas, and we all saw that those those images of people refusing to shake his hand or refusing to talk to him because they were so pissed off with him going away and how out of touch he was. And that's continued in a number of areas. Uh, In the wake of the bushfires, we've of course held, held the pandemic. And on a lot of occasions when things have gone wrong, he sought to blame the states. Uh, He sought to blame other organizations, he won't take responsibility. And that's a clear lack of leadership. And I think that people are starting to wake up to that and they've had enough and they want someone that's going to demonstrate that they can take responsibility for the decisions of the government and do things that are in the interests of Australians. Matt, you've changed gears for me. One of the many questions that I get asked from our community and from people all over Australia is they would like an explanation as to why premiers were doing different things all across Australia. Are you able to explain that to us? Well, they, they were doing different things. And it comes back around partly because of we've got a federated government um, and it's made up of various states and a Commonwealth government. 
the states tend to run their healthcare systems and that's been the tradition and they've determined that they're going to do their own things because they've got different chief medical officers that are advising different things. But really in a time like this, the pandemic wasn't confined to one state. People were being affected all over the country. It's an opportunity for a prime minister to show some leadership and to bring everyone together. And these are the times when you really need that sort of leadership. And the right charisma, the right approach, the ability to talk to people and connect with them, to bring them all together. And I just think, looking back through history, a bloke like Bob Hawke wouldn't have allowed the states to do their own thing, uh, wouldn't have allowed it to get out of hand as it has under Morrison's leadership. Bob Hawke would have got everyone around the negotiating table, sat down and nutted out a deal until everyone was happy about it. And they all would have gone out then and said, we're all on board with this. And this is the national approach. Scott Morrison, I think, has shown an inability to do that. And I think that people are disappointed with that. Sticking on COVID and the pandemic, the vaccine rollout, the experiences in Sydney versus Melbourne, regional versus metropolitan, has been entirely different. Where do you see the failures in the vaccine rollout across Australia? Well, firstly, we didn't order enough um, and we didn't order enough quickly enough. And that comes down to the Prime Minister not investing in enough options. The, 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 the smart move would have been to invest in four or five different options, and he didn't do that despite the advice to do so. He promised Australians that we were at the front of the queue when it came to the ordering of certain vaccines. That was found to be a lie as well, and we were you know, down the middle of the queue. And then once we did get the, the vaccine rollout going and things settled down a bit, then we moved into the Omicron phase. And of course, um, we couldn't get enough rapid antigen tests. Again, a lack of foresight, a lack of leadership, despite warnings, the government didn't act quickly enough. And we saw those horrific scenes, not only in our community, but across Australia over Christmas of people lining up for six and seven hours for a PCR test, only to be told that the testing centre had closed. And they couldn't get a rapid antigen test anywhere for love or money. And that's a, a lack of leadership. And I think that's reflected poorly on the government. And in the community, when I'm out talking to people, the anger around the time was red hot. <laughs> people wanted to kill the Prime Minister because of that lack of leadership and lack of foresight. You've spoken about PCR tests. Rat tests is where we've moved towards. Some of the most conservative governments in the world have made rats free why are they not free in Australia? We think they should have been, particularly given that you're talking about a medical procedure that's required for people to have under the rules that were set by the government. The government said that if you've got symptoms, you've got to get a rapid antigen test or a PCR test. Uh, now, the PCR tests were subsidised and covered by Medicare. It would extend to um, rapid antigen tests as well if you're adopting the same philosophy. So Labor was saying that we thought that they should have been subsidised by Medicare and they should have been covered because people were required to do them under the law. Changing gears a little bit, as a result of the bravery of Brittany Higgins, there's been an investigation into uh, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct in federal parliament, then coming down with the Kate Jenkins report. Run us through a little bit around this report, the investigation, and what have been the subsequent changes that have happened? Yeah, this has been really, really important changes to the way Parliament operates and the culture of Parliament House. Uh, as you know, we go to Parliament generally for a week at a time. 
Uh, they're very long days there. You know, you start work at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and you're there till 9, 10 o'clock at night. You're away from your family. There was a bad culture in Parliament House. And Brittany Higgins, to her credit, highlighted a lot of that. Grace Tame, I think, has been instrumental in in shedding a light on some of the bad behavior that's gone on in society as well. And that's resulted in a significant change in the way the parliament operates and the policies and procedures that we have in place. You know, parliament makes laws for employers to provide safe and respectful workplaces through the establishment of policies, but we didn't even have any policies for ourselves in parliament house. I mean, that's the ultimate hypocrisy really and as a result of what Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame have been highlighting and many other women's groups and organizations for many many years we've had some changes to parliament Um, there was the Kate Jenkins report which recommended a, a number of changes to policies and procedures not only at parliament but throughout society but in a parliamentary sense uh, we've now got a system for complaints to be made anonymously for follow-up, for police investigations, and a new respect in the way that the place works. And I think that that's long overdue. The report found that one in three people experience sexual harassment in Parliament House. I think for anyone reading that report, particularly women, you would pose the question, why on earth would I want to do this? So that's my question to you. Why on earth should anyone, particularly women, get involved in politics? Yeah, they're shocking statistics, aren't they? And that's just unacceptable in any workplace in the country. And I completely understand why any woman and indeed some men would not want to be involved in a workplace like that. But we do need more women involved in politics. We need more women's voices in the parliament. And we need more women advising governments as well in, in senior bureaucracy, in government boards and other positions. And we haven't had enough of that. And I think that some of the changes that have been made as a result of this, we'll see more women come into the parliament in various roles uh, and we'll give a, a greater representation, I think, in the parliament to what we see in, uh, in, in modern society in Australia. And that's a great thing. So uh, I'd say to young women in, in our community, it's a great career. You can make a difference. And that sort of behavior won't be tolerated anymore. And shouldn't be. And there are policies and procedures that are now put in place to ensure that there's protection for people against discrimination, against sexual harassment, uh, and against some of the behaviours that we've seen uncovered. And I hope in the future that women do have more confidence to look at politics as a career. And of recent times, uh, the Labor Party's restructured the way that it operates as well. And we've implemented a national policy now to ensure a safe and respectful workplace um, and that all members of the party from the national secretary right down to the newest volunteer are covered by this policy. And it's got procedures in place about standards of behaviour, what's expected of members and how people can make complaints and have them investigated and how that sort of behaviour won't be tolerated in the party anymore. Let's bring things a little bit closer to home. You've been involved in a huge number of local campaigns. Um, Let's start with the cruise ship terminal. Run us through this for people who are not familiar. 
Yeah, so I got involved in politics through surf life saving. I've been a member of Maroubra Surf Club since I was 13. I was a former president there. And when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I got on, on the surf club board at Maroubra. I started interacting with local members of parliament and local councillors. And one of them said to me, you should come and join the Maroubra branch of the Labor Party. So I went along and got involved and I worked out after a short period of time that this would be a good career. And um, my, my career sort of been, you know, pretty plenty of hard work, as you know, but working on trying to become a member of parliament. And issues such as the cruise terminal um, really hit home for me what politics is all about and what being a local member is all about. The New South Wales government have a proposal to build a massive cruise ship terminal at Yarra Bay in Botany Bay in the South and Bioelectorate. Um, now, Yarra Bay is the only bit of original beach that is left on the southern side of Botany Bay since the first fleet arrived in 1788. And if you look at that southern side of the bay, the whole thing's been developed. You've got the airport, you've got the port, then you've got um, the oil refineries and the, um, the gas cavern, the container ports. All of that's gone. And most of Foreshore Road is reclaimed land. The only little bit that's left that is natural is Yarra Bay. And now this government want to destroy that as well. And anyone that goes out to Yarra Bay on any day, but particularly on a weekend, it's a very popular beach. It's picturesque. Uh, there's a sailing club that operates out of there, teaching kids to sail and how to love the water. And if the government puts a massive cruise ship terminal there, you're just going to destroy that. You'll have to dredge the bay again. There'll be environmental damage. But most importantly of all, Marge, the, the local Aboriginal community there have called that home for thousands of years. They weren't consulted about this before the government hatched up this plot. And if you go down there around sort of around this time of the year, March, April, they start their mullet run, uh, which is an important food source for the community and has been for thousands of years. And that's a great tradition that they hand down to younger generations. Well, they've said to me that uh, if they put a cruise terminal there, the, the mullet won't come into Yarra Bay anymore. And that's a cultural fishing experience that will be lost to our community, not to mention the environmental damage that will be done. So we've been campaigning along with yourself and other MPs, but more importantly, thousands of members of our community who want to maintain that little picturesque part of the bay and maintain the important environmental aspect of it and maintain the local Indigenous community's heritage there and we'll campaign as hard as we can to stop it. What do you see as the solution to this? Where should an extension of the cruise ship terminal go? So during peak times before COVID, before COVID came up and ruined the cruising industry, uh, Sydney did need another, another cruise terminal particularly for the summer months. So from December through to March, it's the peak cruising season down in Sydney. They probably do need another terminal, particularly given the bigger cruise ships now can't get under the Harbour Bridge and go to White Bay. The sensible option, and this is the one that was recommended by the Cruise Industry Reference Group that was chaired by a former Liberal Party leader, Peter Collins, sensible option is to use Garden Island. Use the eastern side of Garden Island, which isn't used by the Navy. There's plenty of space there. It's purpose-built, um, and it makes sense. And cruise, cruise ships have birthed there before. 
Um, so you've got a piece of infrastructure that could be readily used for this purpose. And let's face it, if you come on a cruise ship to Sydney, you want to come in through the Sydney Heads, have a look at the Opera House, the Harbour Bridge, and get off in Sydney. You don't want to get off in Botany Bay and walk off and they say, here's Sydney's largest cemetery, or here's our biggest container port when you get off a boat. Uh, it's not very attractive, um, but we love it. It's a part of our community and we don't want it to change. So Garden Island makes sense. That's where they should send it and that's where they should uh, build it. And just to clarify, the problem really only exists for 12 weeks a year. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. It's only really during the summer season. Uh, the rest of it, they can handle it circular key. So we're not talking about, about a lengthy season. There are other cities that want this as well. Newcastle said, yeah, we, we'd love to have it. And given that Labor, under Anthony Albanese, has pledged we'll build a very fast train line, a high-speed rail line between Newcastle and Sydney, something like that becomes feasible. You could have cruise ships dock in Newcastle. It's straight up to the Hunter Valley for the wine tours and the like, or straight on to a train in which you could be in Sydney within 40 minutes. So these are the options that you've got to start looking at. Remember I mentioned overdevelopment before. If we're going to combat some of that overdevelopment, you've got to start looking to develop outside of the Sydney basin and connect it with good transport links like high-speed rail. And that's an option that could be explored and would be, I think, an innovative way of solving the problem. The Matraville incinerator, another big issue pumping around our community. Again, for those people in our area or our listeners who aren't familiar, what is it? What's the problem with it? And why are we fighting to stop it? Yeah, there's the opal paper mills uh, in Matraville. Um, I've grown up in the area all my life. Anyone that's grown up around the area would know the place used to stink when we were kids. God, uh, if the wind was blowing the wrong way, when they were making paper there, it used to stink. And it's been a bit of a blight on the community for quite a while. Now, they got a proposal to build an incinerator there that would burn waste that would come in from the western suburbs. It would be put into briquettes by sewers, the uh, recycling company. They would bring it in on trucks. Uh, you're talking about eight or nine truck movements a day. And then it would be burned. That would generate uh, heat that would run a turbine and run their electricity needs. But when we started to have a look at this proposal, some of the toxins that they've admitted will come out of the stack, uh, a stack that's 11 stories high, uh, are a bit of a concern. And I think that given our community's got the airport, we've got Port Botany, we've got ICI, or Orica and Quenos, the former ICI site, we've got all of those, those factories around the Botany mascot area. There's enough pollution in our area as it is. And there was a study I read a few years ago that said that 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 botany area around the port was the most polluted in the whole of Australia in terms of emissions and the stuff that we're breathing in. So I think we've had our fair share of it and we don't need any more. And a lot of the residents around Partana Avenue and Marami Avenue and places like that, they're going to be living right next door to this thing. And it's 11 stories high. So if I was living there with my kids, I wouldn't want to be breathing in those fumes every day. There's a school less than a couple of kilometers up the road. Um, We know how far the plume will travel. 
and plenty in the community concerned about it. So we've launched a campaign against it. The company at the moment have lodged a pre-planning submission. They're saying they're going to go ahead with the development application at some stage. And when they do, we'll be ready to make sure that we're marching in the streets against this because we've had our fair share and I think that enough's enough. Buses. A lot has happened yeah. in the last few it's years. Uh, in the last decade, we'll say actually, 31 bus routes have been removed from the eastern suburbs. More than 50 bus stops have been removed. What are you hearing from the community about how this devastation to our public transport is impacting everyday people? I did some mobile offices on the weekend in Clovelly and Coogee and uh, Randwick, and I tell you what, people are red hot with anger about what the state government's done with our bus services. If you think about it, people pay taxes so governments can provide the most important basic services, healthcare, education, public transport. For vulnerable people, these are incredibly important services, and it's what we expect from governments. And this government's gone ahead and cut a lot of those services And it's deeply affected the lives of many in our community, particularly people with disabilities and the elderly and students in particular who rely on those services to go about their their daily lives and have a decent quality of life. And the changes that they've made to buses like the 400 route, um, I've met that kids, I've I've got emails from parents from kids that live in Botany that go to Waverley College. It now takes them two hours to get home. It's a 10 kilometer sort of trip, round trip on a car. It's taking them two hours to get home and they're exhausted. Or elderly people that used to get the the 400 up to East Gardens or or places like that to do their shopping can't go up there anymore. It really affects people's quality of life. And you couple that with the privatisation of the service. Over time, you're going to see cuts to staffing levels, the reduction in the quality of the service. And I just think, why do we need to be selling off these things? Isn't that why we pay bloody taxes? So that governments provide a decent level of service. But this Liberal government, they just want to sell everything they can and try and reap the benefits politically by building more motorways that we end up paying tolls for anyway. Matt, we've got a federal election just around the corner. How are things going to be different under a Labor government if elected? So firstly, we'll take the role of leadership in government very seriously and we'll try and bring people together. We don't want to be a divisive government as this one's been. We want to try and bring Australians together so that we can work together on some of the challenges. The first priority is going to be the recovery from the COVID pandemic and how we build back a better society here in Australia. Our economy uh, has been in the doldrums for many years now, low wages growth, cost of living increasing, low productivity, and people really struggling. So we want to make sure that we get a bit of wages growth back into our system, that people have got real income increases, that we get some decent wages and conditions for people who are working in insecure work and that we ensure that labour productivity starts to grow again. And then then when you're doing that, you can start to talk about paying off the deficit, the budget deficit and some of the debt that we've accumulated to get through the recession and the pandemic. Secondly, you've got to tackle climate change. It's the biggest threat, not only to our economy, but to our society um, for our generation. And For too long, this government has been ignoring the fact that the damage caused by climate change is going to get worse. We're living it at the moment. The flooding that we're seeing in Lismore, in 
southeast Queensland. They're one in 100-year events. But the last one happened five years ago. And all of the climate scientists have been telling us that these extreme weather events are going to become more and more frequent. They cost Australians, not only in the cleanup, in the repair to infrastructure, but we all pay for that through our insurance premiums. So you can bet your life that those communities in those areas, they're going to face increases in their insurance next year. A lot of people around our community will face increases in their insurance as well because the insurance companies, when they go to reinsure, have to pass on that increasing cost associated with the increasing risk. So we're all paying for this. We've had a government that's ignored these sort of things for too long, hasn't put in place the policies to tackle climate change, and we want to get serious about that. So much greater investment in renewables, community batteries for people that have solar panels on their roofs, making electric vehicles cheaper and more accessible, and a medium-term target of a 43% reduction in emissions by 2030. That's the second point. We want to get serious about climate change, and we want to bring integrity back to politics, and we'll do that by instituting a federal ICAC and ensuring that sports rorts and those sort of things can't happen because a minister won't have the power to overrule those uh, independent bodies unless they go into the parliament and justify why the decision's been changed. Another important point is a Labor government will take seriously the Uluru Statement from the heart. For too long, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians haven't been recognised under our constitutional arrangements. We want to change that with a referendum to the Australian people and then make sure that we listen to what came out of Uluru and we implement a constitutionally enshrined voice to the parliament so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can have their say in how decisions are made affecting their lives. Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on Coogee Voice. Before I let you go, there are three very tough questions we ask all of our guests. You must declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where sells the best coffee, and where you can get the best burger. Go. Okay, so best beach has to be Maroubra. Grew up there surfing. I love it. I still surf there every, every Saturday morning with a group of mates. Um, and I think the waves in Maroubra are probably some of the best in in Sydney. That's why it's a surfing reserve. And it's where all my fond memories are of childhood. It's it's my happy place. It's where I met a lot of my uh, my good mates. And it ha- holds a, a place that's dear, near and dear to my heart. And I think it's it's one of the, the great treasures of our community. As long as the uh, uh, as well as the other beaches in in the area, uh, best coffee. I don't drink coffee, so I wouldn't be able to tell you. But the little uh, coffee shop next door to me um, is a beauty on Anzac Parade. There, um, it's called Little Me, and the staff are really friendly and great people. So pop in there. Best burger uh, that'd have to be Big Buns in uh, in Malabar, around the corner from us. Uh, my daughters want to get that every every week. <laughs> So, and they're good people there as well. Matt, thanks for joining us on Coogee Voice. Thanks for having me, Marjorie. Wow, what an enlightening interview. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Matt and the work he's doing as our federal member for Kingsford Smith, you can check him out on Facebook at Matt Thistlethwaite MP. You've been listening to Coogee Voice. Mm-hmm.